0: Hey, a quick note on top of the episode. Uh, one of the things that Eric Sufer and I talk about is the 10th district congressional race uh, in Brooklyn. It's an open seat race. One of the candidates uh, was Bill de of the former horrible, terrible mayor of New York City. Um, And we talk about de Blasio along with the other candidates. Um, Since then, de Blasio has, uh, since we recorded, dropped out of the race, uh, no longer a candidate. That is good news for the people of the 10th Congressional District in Brooklyn, good news for the people of New York City, good news for the people of the United States of America. Um, But does mean that our uh, discussion will seem a little outdated. Thanks. All right, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Joining me today is Eric Sufer. Eric works with me at Tusk Strategies and is an expert both uh, in cryptocurrency and politics, and just thought it'd be fun to have him on. So, Eric, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Bradley. So, you know, it's kind of the, the reason I texted you yesterday and said, hey, would you mind coming on? Is, you know, there's all this talk about what's happening in crypto. And then I was kind of thinking about it, like you're in the guts of it, right? Whether it's legislation to, to ban mining or, you know, bit license applications. How many, you run our crypto practice. How many crypto clients do you have?
1: Uh, about a dozen now. Right.
0: right now. So you are basically seeing what's happening on the ground with a dozen of basically the top companies because they're the ones that can afford us. Yep. Um, plus how legislatures and regulators are viewing all of this. So if, if the... If the Consensus right now, is the sky is falling, Um, you know, crypto was some big scam and it's never coming back again. Um, Where do you agree and disagree with that?
1: Well, first, I I do think the collapse of crypto markets does present an opportunity, actually, for policymakers to actually do something right, that there is broad consensus should be done. I mean, the first thing is that, you know, what kind of precipitated all of this was the collapse of the Terra Luna stablecoin, coin, um, which was
0: really nothing... Explain for one second why and how that happened.
1: Sure, so a stable coin is, in theory, something that is a fairly stable digital asset. Right. Um, so people use it kind of as you would use a bond in, in the traditional uh, financial markets. Um, There are these stablecoins called algorithmic stablecoins, which are basically a computer code that um, self-balances the currency. Um, So if the price ever drops below a dollar, you can trade it in for an alternative kind of sister currency, and it'll kind of balance itself out. Um, That's the really short version of it. Um, The problem is is that um, there are also these real stablecoins that are actually backed one-to-one with actual, um, actual real assets. Um, whether it's it's equities or treasuries, um, and those are supposed to function as a stabilizing force in the crypto markets. Yep. Um, so we had this algorithmic stablecoin that had a ginormous uh, market cap. I, I'm I'm, I'm uh, I can't I can't quote the value of it right right now, but it's it's in, in excess of hundred billion dollars. Um, the problem was that um, it was all really bullshit. Um, and so it had nothing to do with actually um, stabilizing the markets. And what I had to do was just sort of enriching a handful of people who right. were behind it.
0: So how do you? So in this industry, it, there's kind of both, right? It's not an industry full of just scam artists, nor is it an industry full of just like hardcore ideologues who kind of hate central governments and central banks. There's a little bit of both. As you have to both pick who you want to have clients, represent them, figure out you know their problems, everything else how would you assign the percentages? And like, is it mainly people who are true believers in sort of the power of crypto? Or is it people who just say, I want to make a quick buck?
1: I think, I think most of the people, even the people who are trying to make a quick buck are true believers. Um, but I'd say it's 50-50. I'd say it's 50, you know, hacks and hucksters. And I think there's 50% um, in volume who are actually in it for the right reasons. Of course, they want to get rich. No one is in this business because they just want to, you know, kind of, Save save the wilderness or whatever. Um, although there are actually a, a few of those folks, God yep. God uh, bless them. Yep. Um, but you know I, th- there is an opportunity here because I think the big problem for regulators and policymakers, beyond just all the you know terrible political inputs that lead to inaction and inertia, uh, is that they had nothing to really kind of focus them on what are the real problems that need need to be solved. And so there's an opportunity here to actually solve some of those problems.
0: So regulators. Do they see it the way you do that it's 50-50? Do they have a totally different percentage in their mind? And how well do they even understand the industry?
1: I think most regular, I mean, there's not a lot of regulators who actually understand the industry at all. I think New York has an edge because they've been doing it since 2015. Most states just kind of try to fit it into the same way they regulate Western Union, which obviously makes no sense, but they're doing what they can, I guess. Um, I think that there are probably a lot of folks in government um, who see the breakdown as probably... 50-50, but, you know, they see it as their job to do everything at all in their power to protect against that 50% of kind of hucksters. You know, the, the thing is that, you know, consumers are actually getting smarter, too. Investors are getting smarter. And, you know, they can kind of weed out the bullshit on their own. And actually, collapse like we had um, over the past month or two is a great way of kind of washing out all, all the bullshit.
0: So, yeah, so, so arguably consumer protection should be what the regulators are most focused on and in a way if you are a truly legitimate crypto business you kind of want the hucksters washed out as well because it delegitimizes you so totally. what if, if if i made you the dfs superintendent today and i said okay yeah. Eric, you decide what the regulations should be what what would you do and what do you think uh, the companies in the space would, would agree with and disagree with
1: so i think there are a, a few things one i think that if you're kind of call yourself a stable coin going back to that you have to show that you have to actually show that you actually have actual reserves yeah. um, it's not just you know a, a giant house of cards um, i think uh, number two very basic things that we hold every other industry uh, to, to a standard of just like being truth, truthful in your marketing um, if you're gonna promise people insane yields of 20 30 percent um, you have to kind of show your work a little bit you, you you have to make you have to show regulators that you can actually deliver on that and if you can't then you can't be surprised when they bring enforcement actions against you those are kind of the two you know, really main things, and, and then I think the third one is something that again I think most people would agree with, yet is not the standard in the industry, which is that if you're investing uh, on an exchange like a Coinbase um, or somewhere else, those. Assets. your assets should be what we call bankruptcy remote, meaning they shouldn't just be like, you know, shares you're giving to a company, and if the company goes under, you're you're wiped out. There should actually be some kind of protection to ensure that your assets are not part of the whole, kind of, you know, company's finances. Right.
0: So if you take your dozen or so crypto clients and you lay out those three principles, what percentage agreement are you getting?
1: I think you're getting 90% agreement on those on those principles. And, and, and I think the ones who kind of don't do some of that stuff already would in a heartbeat if that was a standard across across the
0: industry. Got it. So then there's ancillary stuff, too, that I think is both really interesting and potentially societally impactful and important. So let's start with um, the proposed mining ban that passed in New York. I think it hasn't been signed or vetoed by the governor yet, but probably the harbinger for, for other states as well. Um, why is this an issue, and what do you think the solution should be?
1: So it, it's an issue because a lot of states over the past four years have adopted really ambitious uh climate um, climate guidelines, and they want to reduce their fossil fuel output um, and emissions uh, drastically over the next 10 years. New York was one of those states, um, and then, uh, lo and behold, you saw in some kind of, you know, post-industrial towns that had really been wiped out um, over the past decade, um, mining facilities pop up, and they were making use of, of uh, what's called behind-the-grid um, energy, um, off, often by fossil fuels, um, to... Uh, to, to, to really power their their, their um, proof-of-work mining operations. Um, the the problem is that, you know, obviously, you're burning more fossil fuels, you're doing it behind the meter, um, you're releasing more emissions, and the environmentalists, the, the environmentalists found a kind of convenient target in mining operations, which had no kind of political capital. Um, they had no track record here in New York. Um, and so, if you want to reduce emissions and you want a convenient villain, you know, mining operators were really it.
0: Um- what would the kind of, is there a way to sustainably create and mine crypto um, as opposed to sort of using massive, massive amounts of energy?
1: Well, um, as some of your listeners probably know, there are two different types of um blockchains. There is proof of work and proof of stake. Um, and proof of stake, which is where kind of everything other than, than Bitcoin happens, including Ethereum, which is the, the second biggest, they're uh, moving over to, to proof of stake. That requires, you know, I think the estimate is like 99.9% less energy than proof of work mining. Right. Right. So I think the industry is moving there. And even even the moratorium in New York is pretty narrowly tailored. It's just right now, because the industry is so young and, and um, just kind of getting its sea legs, it's all about the vibe. It's all about the narrative. And if they get a bad message from New York, a lot of folks, you know, in, in the in, in the cryptoverse are going to say, "Okay, New York is closed for business. We can't come here." Now, I think, you know, we'll see. I think the fact that there was a, you know, a bit of a, a collapse in the markets are going to cause, you know, more of the adults in the in the room to kind of stand up and say, you know, okay, we kind of still need New York, uh, so it might not be all that terrible. But you know, that's that's where we are right now.
0: Yeah, the and risk. and. So the conversations that I've had with the crypto community, sort of leaders in the crypto community, has been, look, guys, um, it, you're not going to be able to overall just maintain the current approach to mining and its energy consumption, You know, whether it's proof of stake or you have renewable energy ways to do proof of work. Um, you have to come up with a plan proactively that you can live with and then go past that in states, because playing whack-a-mole, you may defeat a bill here or there, although I think they're going to lose in New York, um, but it's not a strategy. Do, Do they get that? No,
1: I don't think so, and I think, <laughs> I don't think so either. a lot of it is because you know, unlike in, in in some other industries and kind of the broader broader tech space, you sometimes have veterans um, who fought these sort of wars in government or regulators, um, and they're they're pretty sophisticated. In crypto, you have a lot of geniuses, you have a lot of great finance or technology experts, but you don't have a lot of kind of political experts, uh, and, and obviously that that's why people come to us. Um, but you know. Often, the reaction is, from a new industry like crypto, it's, don't do this bad thing, Just and what's the alternative? Just don't do it at all. Just trust us, it'd be terrible, and you know we're smarter than you. That obviously doesn't work in, in government for a whole number of reasons. You really need to create an alternative structure, and so what I've been encouraging folks on the side, I, I don't work in mining, we don't work in mining at, at, at TS, um, but you know, create a kind of system of incentives uh, for proof of work um, miners um, to actually use renewable sources of energy, which a lot of them want to do half the time anyway, and create a, you know, a a system of disincentives for sticking to fossil fuels over the long term. I think that's a solution that most people would live with, but right now nobody's talking about it, and that's, you know, usually for the the same reasons that we always have.
0: Once Bitcoin is fully mined, how does the proof of work kind of ecosystem change, or does it not Does it change?
1: Well, I, I mean, existentially, how does it change? I mean, I, I think that, you know, once you're out of the mining business, I think it does sort of clear a huge hurdle um, for the industry in terms of just having to deal with all these environmental concerns, and which is really the most potent political argument against crypto. Um, so, you know, I... I I don't know the estimates of when when that's going to happen, uh, but it's going to happen sooner rather than later. Um, and it, again, creates an opportunity for the industry to you know focus on the consumer protection issues that folks actually care about, that policymakers should be focused on, um, and and create another opportunity for the industry to grow.
0: Yeah. So I, one thing that I've been talking about publicly lately is the notion of only kind of legitimizing the tokens that have some sort of underlying inherent value, right? And that inherent value could just be supply and demand, like Bitcoin, right? That's a limited amount of it. Um, It could be applications like Ethereum or Tezos where you can build on top of it, right? They're blockchains that you can build on top of it. It could be, like you suggested, stable coins with very provable and real reserves and assets to back against it. and I know that there'd be some antitrust issues around this, but if, if we identified 20 tokens that did that, and the top 10 exchanges said, you know what, this is all we're going to trade, um, would that be better? Or would that stabilize the industry and kind of reduce some of the volatility? I think it would reduce some of the
1: volatility for sure. The thing is that's that type of thing is against sort of the whole kind of ethos yeah. for a, a lot of people. It's, you know, there's there's so much innovation left to be had and you need to constantly cultivate it. Um, now there's a balance you, you you have to strike. I mean, we constantly work with regulators to try to find that balance, whether it's, you know, kind of green listing new tokens or new technologies or new DeFi protocols. Um, but I, I don't think you can just kind of put a cap on it, you know, starting... Know, December 31st of 2022.
0: Right. Um, so we saw that crypto became very fashionable with some politicians, most notably Mayor Suarez in Miami, Mayor Adams here in New York. Um, we've had Mayor Suarez on the podcast before to talk about all of this. Um, how does that, if, if if the prevailing political winds just reflect what they think is public opinion, um, is there now a flight from crypto support from politicians or do you think it holds steady? I think we've
1: seen it, 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 it's been holding steady so far. And even in Washington, which, you know, they just start putting their finger, they wake up and put their finger up and see, see where the wind is blowing. Um, and I think that, that's been for a few reasons, including the fact that um, most of the players that have, you know, had real problems and collapsed were not very active in Washington. Um, and the ones that have, you know, taken their lumps, it's for reasons because people have retreated from the markets, not because they had some kind of fundamentally you know, misleading product.
0: Yeah, and then at the same time, you know, another conversation that I have with crypto leaders is, and, and there's like Sam beckman has got this right, and he and I have talked about this, but is you have, to, they have to fear that you can impact their next primary. And if they do, then just like they fear pharma or oil or whoever else, they will take you seriously. And if they don't, um, they may give you lip service to get your p- campaign contributions or whatever else, because they think by saying the word blockchain, they'll get on TV. Right. But reality is you have to become a political institution, um, just like every other industry, do you think that point is getting across?
1: Uh, I think it is. I think just enough folks in the industry don't necessarily trust each other to all kind of row in the in the same direction. So you have a lot of money, a lot of crypto money that that's pouring into political races. Um, unfortunately, it's not extremely well organized, um, and you know, from from what I've seen, they they're not they're they're not very focused on what the results need to be. Um, I haven't seen really a clear narrative of how they want crypto to be regulated. Um, I've just seen what we see happen in other industries where They just lobby, 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 and the result is inaction, um, which is not a sustainable long-term strategy, right? Because you're going to have a crisis in the next year or two or three or four years that's even worse than the one that we've seen in the crypto markets this year. Um, And when that happens, much like you saw in the accounting scandals in the 80s or 90s or Enron or WorldCom, there's, there's going to be an extreme overreaction And if all you've been lobbying for is don't do much, um, you're in for a whole heap of trouble.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. So let's pivot a little more broadly to politics in general. You've got a wealth of experience in in New York, nationally. So I was reading a story somewhere yesterday about the expectation that while gas prices are declining right now, um, they will spike again in the fall, right, leading right into the election. So this was my question. What is a more powerful impact on turnout and votes? Dobbs or higher gas prices?
1: Ah, uh, jeez, you know, talking about Dobbs, I feel like it's a whole bunch of different ways for me to get in trouble here. Um- as being someone who's extremely pro-choice and wants to see people motivated by it. um, I I think, right now, what you've seen is an an absence of leadership at the federal level for pushing back on Dobbs, and the total absence of a a plan. It's just people somewhat meekly saying, this is why we need to vote, which I don't really think galvanizes folks. and instead, you're just seeing—you know—it's not necessarily a powerful force to get people to vote for Republicans. But high gas prices, inflation, um, just general malaise in the uh, in the country—you know, to borrow a term from from the Carter era—that um, is going to really depress turnout among Democrats, who you know, the House and Senate need to come out um, to actually keep keep their majorities.
0: Um, yeah, and I think generally speaking, people just—if if the status quo is bad. They rebel against the status quo, um, which at the moment, at least federally, happens to be Democrats. Um, if you had to pick the Democratic nominee for 24, who do you want it to be?
1: I want to take another look at uh, Polis, Governor Polis in uh, Colorado. Mm-hmm. I think he's interesting. Um, and obviously, Pete Buttigieg is getting a, a lot of attention. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, you need to pull better than like two percent with Black voters if you're going to be a um, viable candidate for the Democratic nomination. Um, you know, this is crazy, to, and, and it sounds like I'm just kind of, you know, um, doing, doing, working on my, my other my other work. But you know, I, I think it would be interesting for a strong, um, historic woman governor, such as perhaps the governor of New York, to try to put her toe in. And you know, well, see,
0: or how about Gretchen Whitmer is rumored to be uh, yes, a Gretchen today, Whitmer right? too. I read about yeah. that in the Post uh, the other day. Yeah, I, you know,
1: if if if, if Gretchen Whitmer, I she, I know, I know she has a reelection this year. Yep. Um, I think she's um, ahead in the polls over there. Um, if she can pull that out, that's obviously a great swing state. But you know, the, I I've never been someone who believes so much in the kind of swing state governor thereby a viable path to to, to the nomination. I don't think that's been sort of proven out um, over time. Um, so while I think she's a compelling candidate and I think she's got a lot a lot going for her, I think you know she's got to be under a much brighter spotlight once she really enters the primary than she's endured so far.
0: Yeah. Give me five politicians in New York could be city, state, federal. Um, Who impress you either because they have overwhelming political talent, overwhelming sort of actual substantive ability, or maybe even a combination of both?
1: Five. Okay. Um, So I think the first one who always pops to my mind is Jamani Williams. Um, yeah, he has not put it all together yet to for a, a, a massive city or statewide campaign. He is the public advocate. Uh, for folks who don't know, that is a citywide elected position. It's often seen as just kind of the public foil to the mayor. He's um, got a small office. It's mostly advocacy-based. Um, Jamani has enormous crossover appeal I think you know he had a number of personal issues that he was vocal you know kind of very very open about over this past year um, that limited him in his run for governor but I think he's still got a very bright future he's pretty unafraid while he's you know very progressive on a lot of social issues um, he does take more controversial positions um, that are that you know are difficult to define um, so Jumanis at, at the top of the list. I mean, okay. it's hard It's hard to argue. I mean, Bradley, as we experienced with the skills and talents of Eric Adams. You yeah, know, I, he, would,
0: he would be on my list. Yeah, I sure. mean,
1: we, you know, he's he's obviously, a, according to polls, taken a dip since he was first elected. But, I mean, he just outmaneuvered the shit out of the field day to day. And I think that yeah. was largely due to just personal talent, not to, you know, discount the work of his team. But, I mean, this is a guy who's been kind of plotting for
0: where he is for
1: a very long time. And he, he's there. We'll see if he can make the most of it,
0: you know. And so far pretty good. In terms of his poll numbers, so I've been thinking lately that job approval and re election aren't really correlated anymore anyway. Right. Oh, no. Forty or thirty. forty is sort of the new normal right. uh, for job approval, which doesn't necessarily mean that you will or won't get reelected.
1: Right. And, and I think that, you know, particularly in a, in a city like New York, where there are still partisan elections, which I know you're a huge fan of, Bradley, <laughs> um, you know, Eric Adams' numbers could be he could have, you know, 12 percent approval rating and he would, you know, still virtually guaranteed to win a second term in uh, three years. Right. Um, but, but, but yes, I mean, I think I think nationally, you know, uh, the, all the pundits like to point to, you know, Biden's numbers, which are pretty low right now by, by any standard.
0: Um, but, you know,
1: numbers in the high 30s, low 40s, that's fine.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah amazingly the, so. Yeah. What, what would have driven politicians on a, literally to the ledge yeah. 10, 20 years ago? If I met people I worked for, would like wanted to kill themselves, um, would be like, "Oh, great, I have forty-one. I'm yeah, doing right. really well." Yeah, Right.
1: I mean, I think you know Trump is obviously you know delusional and a sociopath, but you know he thinks that you know he sees thirty-three. He sees anything above thirty-three. I hear as sort of you know a validation that he's still um, a really viable candidate. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see how that, how that works out. But, you know, if, if we have a candidate who's at, you know, 39%, 40%, going up a candidate uh, like Donald Trump who's stuck at 32 33 I weirdly feel pretty good about our chances. Yeah.
0: All right, give me a couple more New York politicians. God. Um,
1: you know, there, there's a new city council, so I think we still have to see a lot of the talent um, there, how that, how that shakes out. Um, Crystal Hudson is a city council member. And Um, and
0: part wife of our former colleague, Sasha.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, So, you know, I I think she's really talented. I think it's, you know, you have to resist a lot of the kind of, you know, political inputs and polls as a city council person in order to really stand out. I think time will tell whether she can. Um, I think Mike Gianaris, as the Senate um, deputy leader, um, is actually very, very skilled. He killed, he beat Amazon.
0: I mean, yeah. he was terrible that he did that. He probably caused more damage to the state of New York than almost anyone in history, but politically, pretty fucking impressive.
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, he was you know kind of tacking as a as a moderate, and then Amazon happened um, more and more more profoundly just just before that. AOC happened in his district. Um, he read the room and he mobilized against it. And you know, look, he generated some opposition locally to that. Um, but like you said, it was an enormous victory for him. It consolidated a lot of his power. And he's been pretty, you know, pretty deft kind of floor manager on the state senate uh, for both his his conference and for his own personal politics. You know what what that means for him longer term. You know, I think he's still going to be a very viable attorney general candidate um, whenever that seat becomes open again. But you know, that much kind of raw talent can you know can lead to places that you don't
0: expect. Um, anyone in the assembly that you find particularly impressive?
1: Well, I love uh, I love my guy Carl Hasty. Um, Who's the, the, the Assembly Speaker who I helped elect uh, to that role after his predecessor was indicted?
0: Um, I also think. Um, which is the norm. That's basically how succession happens. Virtually in the everyone, virtually everyone
1: yeah. I've worked for in New York uh, politics, whether it's Elliot Spitzer <laughs> or Eric Schneiderman um, or Carl Hasty has been you know, only one degree removed from a political corruption scandal. Um, I think Crystal People Stokes, uh, she's an Assemblywoman uh, from Buffalo. Also very skilled. She passed the uh, landmark um, adult recreational use uh, bill for marijuana in New York. We're going to have her first dispensaries open hopefully early next year. Um, <clears throat> I think I think that really... So you know, let me...
0: Th- three names that you didn't mention that surprised me. All federal. Um, Richie Torres.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It's I mean, he's like, our guy. He's our guy. I love yeah. him. He's the best.
0: Um, Richie Torres, a congressman from the Bronx, and uh, just big supporter of mobile voting, you know, big supporter on the crypto side, uh, and I just think insanely talented. I would personally prefer to see Richie move eventually towards mayor as opposed to sort of staying in Washington because I think he could be better and more impactful. Um, I've had that conversation with different members of Congress before. It's a hard conversation, especially what— so Hakeem, who would also—you didn't mention, but would be on my list. I think Hakeem is, you know, assumed to be whenever the Democrats retake the House— They lose the House, presumably, and then they retake it at some point. Um, The next speaker, I was trying to convince him to primary de Blasio, so this would have been like 2016. And I made the mistake of revealing that no New York City mayor has ever won higher office of any kind. Not just president, although they all tried. No one's ever become governor. No one's ever become senator. I guess if de Blasio wins this congressional race, he'll be the most successful uh, former wow. mayor that, God, God forbid, he does. Um, and that was it for Hakeem. Once he heard that, he's like, I'm out. Thanks for letting <laughs> me know. Um, but, you know, anyone who has the uh, ability to potentially be the next Speaker of the House, I, I think, belongs on the list. And the last one, although, you know, I, I can't stand a lot of her, but is, is AOC. I mean, the talent is is undeniable, right? I mean, she was—she's sure. a— I don't know if she's a viable presidential candidate, but she's a viable person to be talked about as a presidential candidate.
1: Right. Yeah, she's she's on that that top ten list for for Democrats for okay. sure. You know, it, it, it's it's funny how our sort of we naturally drift towards the areas. You know, I, I naturally drift towards city and state people. You drift towards the federal people that are actually the names that most most people actually know.
0: Well, I, and you know what, name just just hit me that that we that we left out. He's the Senate Majority Leader. He lives in Brooklyn. Um, and we didn't name Chuck Schumer.
1: Yeah, well, you kind of take Chuck for granted that he's going to continue doing what he's doing. You know, it's, it, it's funny, locally, Chuck is not a huge force, and I think that's, that's very intentional by him. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 I have a friend who used to work for him, and you know, I would used to ask him, what is Chuck going to do um, in this race or that race? And he'd say, you know, whatever the kingmaker is um, for that race, Chuck wants to be the opposite. He'll come in at the very last minute when someone's clearly going to win, and he'll say great things about them and endorse them. This is not a risk that he he likes to take. Obviously, he's extraordinarily sophisticated from going from a congressman to Senate majority leader um, and someone who may actually hold on to his majority, believe it or not, in this horrible political environment for, for Democrats. Um, but yeah, it is interesting how, as New Yorkers, you begin to just kind of take Chuck
0: for granted. Yeah, he's just sort of this. He's always there. All right, last question. So we've got a... Congressional primary coming up in New York uh, and also some, I guess, state Senate primaries in a few weeks uh, because of all kinds of court decisions and weird shit that happened. Um, but the the two most talked about are the Jerry Nadler, Carolyn Maloney primary here in Manhattan and then the Not open seat in Brooklyn. Just give me a quick analysis of each.
1: Yeah, it's been really fun to watch. It. I, 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 think, I think Jerry Nadler is favored in the— um uh, in his district against against Carolyn Maloney, there's some polling that showed that she was ahead by uh, up to 10 points. But I think primary polling is you know complete horseshit to be honest. Um, there was a, a really bad story about Carolyn Maloney um, being kind of anti-vax, which she now denies. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it was it was several years back, not uh, not on COVID vaccines, but on you know the connection um, between uh, childhood vaccines. Seriously, but that's and usually and like a super autism. far
0: left position or super far right of which she's kind of moderate. Right.
1: Yeah, right. Well, you know, if you get, you know, I, I've, I've worked for some politicians um, who would kind of pal around with RFK Jr., um, who was a great environmentalist um, on the one hand, and also a crazy anti-vaxer on the other, yeah. and then once COVID happened, it, it just totally kind of pushed him out. So I, I think I think Jerry probably holds it. I mean, he's just got he's just a really well organized campaign. Um, I know some of my colleagues in the office feel 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 different, but you know, uh, my my money's on Jerry in that seat. And then I think in the in the tenth, um, which is where you know De Blasio. Do you live in the tenth? Uh, I just moved out of the tenth, but okay. uh, but yes, um, I think I'm still still registered there, so I might be able to. Maybe legitimately cast a ballot against de Blasio. Um, we'll see. I guess now that I'm talking about it, maybe right I now can't. we're gonna
0: have the entire election invalidated because Eric said this in the <laughs> podcast. Um,
1: so yeah, I guess well, shit. Now I can't do it. Um, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of actually talented politicians running in that race. Again, no one has any clue what's what's going to happen. I think there's gonna be a n- number of people go go up and down. You do have to, you know, I, I haven't heard much of the um, kind of. Almost de facto incumbent, the current member of Congress uh, who changed district, uh, Mondaire Jones, who went from Rockland County down to uh, down to the, the, the 10th, which is Lower Manhattan and uh, Brooklyn. Um, you know, he has a lot of money. He was told by the DCCC that he'd be treated as an incumbent in that race. Maybe he'll drop, you know, four or five million dollars in the last two weeks. That could change the race. Um, right now, you know, I, I think you do have to consider, you know, Carlina Rivera, a city councilwoman, very talented. Yuliy New, who's sort of um, coalesced the left around her, so, she's they, in
0: the assembly. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, you know they, they've they've done a, a, a pretty good job. Um, but you know, hey, I, I I just feel like you know you you've made this point, Bradley, before. Is um, as much as we like to dump on De Blasio, he is a really talented and effective campaigner. Yeah, and I think he's been doing a pretty good job. I mean, the press coverage of him has been has been pretty good. And I mean, he does know that district really well. You can't you can't yeah, argue with look, that.
0: Yeah, and look, if if you have four or five strong candidates. Uh, who are splitting the vote, then argue with the guy with the most name recognition should win, right. and that's De Blasio. Unless it's all from the left and there's someone running a really good campaign up the middle, but I don't see who that would be. No, I
1: mean I think Dan Goldman, you know, has some money. I think he's got a he's, he's got a compelling case. I just saw some of his ads over the weekend. I think it's a it's a pretty good you know narrative as the anti-Trump guy, particularly if Donald Trump continues to make more noise about actually running and and officially j- jumps into the race this summer. Um, I think that's that that's good for a kind of a more center candidate like, like Goldman. Um, but it, that's going to be the most fun campaign to watch, especially during the month of August.
0: Cool. All right. Well, then you'll have to come back on to talk about it once we know who wins. Thanks, Brad. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thank you.